Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace. It's good to be here worshiping with you today. And uh, special thanks to Jesse and his team for warming up our hearts and already preaching a message that I'm about to preach. I think in some ways we could just say amen, sing another hymn, and go home because of the rich theological truths that we've been singing about this morning that have helped us, I guess, interpret what really is true in this world in light of or despite of our circumstances. I've been in a set of circumstances recently that have really rocked me back a little bit, caused me to, I guess, seek to find my identity in things that are not Christ, things that are sinful, things that I do maybe, things, you know, and, and I don't know if that identifies with you at all, if that resonates with you at all, but life is kind of uncertain here. And sometimes it takes a, a very a very extreme sense of that. And let me unpack what I'm talking about. Life is uncertain, humanly speaking. Take, for instance, 10 days ago, a good friend of mine, Troy Soldium, from up in North Dakota, went off to work, just like he normally does. And he's a family man, so he took one of his sons along that day. And what he didn't know at the beginning of that day is that by the end of that day, he'd be walking out of an emergency room without his son. And a few days later, he would be burying that son because a tragic accident had taken his life. Those are the sorts of things that I don't think any of us wake up and are prepared for, if you will. Those are the sorts of circumstances that can shake you and challenge your faith like none other, right? But one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that we have a God who knows these things. We have a God who, as we have been singing this morning, He gently leads His band along. He knows the challenges that we are going to be facing. He knows the joys that we are going to be facing. And all the way along, He goes ahead of us and gives us, or at least offers us, what we need. So that when that time comes, we are ready. And that's exactly one of the things that we are going to be finding here in Mark chapter 14. Open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. So one of the things that we can find comfort in is that God knows our circumstances. He can see them beforehand. He knew the number of Troy's son's days before there were yet any of them. He knew that tragic accident would happen that day. And he had been preparing Troy and his wife, Jana and their family to be able to weather the storm of this trial of faith. They're grieved. But I can testify to you that they are grieving with hope in Christ. And God is using this tragedy to begin to call people unto himself. There are people coming up to them and saying, I don't know where your strength comes from, but I want what you have. Can we study the word together? That sort of thing. God can use the most tragic of circumstances. And He provides what we need in order to weather them faithfully. So in Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus demonstrating this foreknowledge of events that are coming up. We see Him recognizing some things that will take our, the disciples by surprise. He knows that Judas is about to betray Him. He knows that Peter and all the rest are about to deny him and scatter. He knows that he is about to be arrested and a mock trial will be set up and he'll be condemned to death. He'll be flogged 
He knows he's going to suffer. And he knows that he will bear the sin of the world as he dies on Calvary's cross and is buried. He knows these things. But the disciples don't. So Jesus, gently caring for his disciples, what we'll find in, in Mark chapter 14 today, is he's going to give them what they need in order to weather this storm. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin reading together at verse 12. Before we read, I'd like to pause and to pray. Oh, Father, we worship you and we praise you and we thank you that you have given us everything that's necessary for life and godliness. We thank you for these precious words that we are about to read. And we pray that you would empower the reading of them by the same spirit that inspired them. We pray that you would warm and cultivate our hearts so that we might receive them in the power of that same spirit. Lord, if you don't show up, all that we do here today will be for naught. But we recognize that you are a God who knows these things and you want to provide for your people ahead of time so that we might weather our circumstances that you allow in our lives for your glory. Whether it be joy or whether it be sorrow, Lord, we want to be faithful people. So would you use your word to teach us and to exhort us and to encourage us today so that, Lord, upon your return, we might be found faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters... Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away 
for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. As we read this passage, bearing in mind that Jesus is caring for his disciples, he knows what lies ahead. He's been telling them that he is on his way in the city of Jerusalem, marching toward his death. He's been telling him that a number of times. He knows these things are true. And as he does, let's make some observations. Looking back again at the first paragraph, beginning at verse 12, I want us to recognize that Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. Mark doesn't tell us this. He shows us this. But Luke's account makes it clear that Jesus himself says, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this feast with you before I suffer. And we see the details that Jesus goes through and he gives them. And as we look at the details, we'll notice that Jesus really does earnestly desire to eat the Passover with his disciples. Look with me, beginning at verse 13. He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city. The Passover feast was to be celebrated within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So he tells them to go there so that they are obediently fulfilling that command of the law. Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This is not what they would normally expect to find. Carrying water was a job of women in that culture. So for them to be keeping an eye out for a man carrying a jar of water would have been very obvious to see. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He gives them their very lines that they are to use. Follow this guy that you see, this guy carrying this jar of water. Go into the house, and when you see the master, tell him this. And he gives him the script. Very, very detailed. Very, very precise. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The owner of the house has already taken time to furnish and ready this room. There is lots of preparation that has gone in to prepare this place. And Jesus knows that he wants to spend time with his disciples celebrating this particular feast, the feast of the Passover. And he goes through all sorts of detailed instruction in order for this to, to be done. <coughs> to find that secluded place where he and his disciples can meet and have an intimate celebration of the Passover meal. In some ways, these details, they sound more like what some young men go through in order to propose marriage to their spouses these days. There's so much detail and it's so complicated these days what, what has happened when, <laughs> when a young man wants to propose marriage to a young woman. Whatever happened to the days where all you did was just knocked on the door, showed up with roses and said, will you marry me? <laughs> I feel like this generation just complicates everything, but 
Lord bless them. If, if that's how you have chosen to propose to your wife and she said yes, uh, God uses it all. <laughs> but this is the level of detail that Jesus uses here to arrange this place. Now, what Mark doesn't tell us is if he has arranged this, humanly speaking, gone, gone ahead and made arrangements with the, the owner of the house, saying, will you please prepare that upper room so that my disciples and I can do this? And by the way, I'm going to send a guy carrying a jar of water to your house, and, and when my disciples show up, they're going to ask you this particular question, and when they do, will you show them the room? Mark doesn't tell us those details. He just tells us, this is what I want you to do. So whether Jesus knows these details because he himself humanly has arranged them or whether he sovereignly knows them because he's intimately connected with the voice of the Spirit and God is revealing to him that this is how things will be, Mark doesn't tell us. But either way, great care is taken to arrange the place for the celebration of the Passover. Jesus earnestly desires to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. But the question I think that we're all wondering then is why? Why would Jesus so earnestly desire to celebrate this feast with his disciples? And I think there are a couple of answers to that question. Two primary reasons why Jesus earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with his disciples. The first reason I think that he earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples is because he knew that the symbolism of this feast would help them understand his death. The Passover feast is a highly symbolic feast. It's one that, that has been celebrated by the nation of Israel since the days they were delivered from Egypt. It's a meal that remembers how God made good on his promises that he made for his people in Exodus 6. Listen to these promises. I'll read from Exodus 6, beginning at verse 6, and including verse 7. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there are at least four things that they are celebrating here in light of these promises that God made to deliver his people. They're remembering their deliverance from the Egyptians. They're remembering their liberation from their slavery to the Egyptians. They're remembering their redemption that God meted out for them through great acts of judgment. If you remember, the context of the Passover is a series of ten plagues that God uses to begin to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And the first ten were not successful, but it was the tenth that it came with it, the Passover. So they're remembering the redemption with great acts of judgment, and they're remembering reconciliation with God. This promise that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Now the specific instruction that was given is recorded in Exodus chapter 12 beginning at verse 21. Let me recite that for us. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 
and take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood as it is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now remember, the tenth plague that God promised was to take the firstborn in every household in Egypt. Every Egyptian family would lose their firstborn. And every Jewish family would also lose their firstborn if they did not obey this command. Now, if they obeyed this command and they slaughtered the Passover lamb and they took its blood and applied it to the doorposts and the lintel of their home, when the angel of death came through in fulfillment of the tenth plague, he would pass over their home. So either way, it is going to cost every household a life. Blood will be shed. Either their firstborn will be taken by a sovereign act of God, or they will obediently put their faith and trust in a substitute, that of a lamb. And the blood of the lamb would then cover their house. And when the angel of death passed through, he would see the blood and pass over their house, and their firstborn would remain alive. This is the celebration of the Passover that, that Jesus is wanting to celebrate with his people. The people were protected from death because they sacrificed a lamb. They were putting their faith in a God who had promised them that if they trust this lamb, if they obediently take a lamb and apply its blood to their doorpost, they would be preserved alive. And that's exactly what they did. So the first reason that Jesus wanted to desire to eat the Passover with his disciples because he knew the symbolism would help them understand his death and it, because it's a meal that remembers the promises that God made to his people. And secondly, it's a family meal. This is a meal that every man in his household is to take a lamb and they are to share it together. This is done as households. If a man's household was too small to be consuming a lamb, they were to find their nearest neighbor and they were to kill one lamb between them. And those two households would be delivered as they celebrated and sacrificed this Passover lamb. It's a family meal. And earlier in Mark, we have seen that Jesus has declared that those people who do the will of God are his family. Right? He has asked, who is my mother and my father and my brothers? But those who obey the will of God. So here Jesus is desiring to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, with his family, the people that he considers family. And they celebrate this feast of supreme importance together. Now think of your favorite family gathering. Maybe you grew up in a home where there were traditional on holidays or something like that, a family gathering. For me, it's the Christmas gathering at Grandma and Grandpa Haugen's place. It either happened on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day based on the other side of the family where we happened to be. But when we were at Grandma and Grandpa Haugen's place, that celebration started in the early afternoon. People would gather as they were able, either as they came in after their own church services or whatever, and we would celebrate together over sweets and coffee 
And then eventually there would be a formal meal with all of our favorite foods. There would be, of course, a kid's table that we got delegated to and an adult's table, right? And we would celebrate together through, through a meal. And then shortly after that, after the dishes were done, we would sit down in the living room, just crammed into this tiny little living room, all of us, from grandma and grandpa, all their children and spouses, and the grandkids. And there was a, there was a particular order of service, if you will. We sang our favorite carols. Each grandchild would recite their favorite um, or their assigned lines from their Christmas pageant. Or if we happened to be playing or singing, we would play a solo on our instrument, a trombone or a saxophone, or we would sing a solo, whatever the case might be. My aunts would sing a duet called The Star of the East. And my uncles would stand up, all three of them, and sing We Three Kings. That sort of thing. You get the, the picture here? My grandma organized all of this. But at the end, we would sit down and one lucky person would be selected to read the birth narrative from Luke 2. And when that was done, we would close in prayer and then we would begin to open presents together. It was an intimate family gathering. We all knew the tradition. It was the same every year and we all loved it. And that's a little bit of what Jesus and his disciples are doing here. This is the favorite feast of the, of the nation of Israel. And they're gathering together like they've done last year and the year before and the year before. And they're coming together this time as a family unit of Jesus and disciples. And they're sharing this intimate meal together as family. Jesus knows that this celebration of this feast is exactly what the disciples would need in order to prepare them for what was about to happen. Jesus is moving intentionally toward the cross. And this will rock the disciples' world. And Jesus knows it. And it's exactly the significance of this feast that will meet the disciples at their point of need in the coming days and in the coming hours as these unexpected circumstances are thrust upon them. And this brings us back down, down to the second reason that Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. It's because he knew how badly they needed it. He knew that these disciples that he was celebrating the Passover with, they desperately needed to be reminded one more time of the symbolism of this meal. He knew how badly they needed it. He knew that one of these intimate friends would betray him. Read with me from verse 17. Back in Mark 14 now, looking at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will deny, betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, and to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. It's one of these people who are gathered at this intimate family gathering who is going to betray him. Judas is one of the special people that have been invited to this family meal that Jesus has intentionally desired to celebrate this feast with. Judas, the one who would betray him. He's one of his own, one of his closest associates, one of his closest and dearest friends. One of his own would betray him in the context of a meal of such significance. 
They were sorrowful. Of course they were sorrowful. Can you imagine at your favorite family gathering someone being told that they would betray the rest of the family? Now, because of sin, that's probably far too close to reality for some of you sitting out here. But this is Jesus and his disciples. They've been following him through thick and through thin. They've seen him do miracles. They've listened to him proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they've seen people come to faith. These guys, one of these guys will betray him. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now in this verse, we must recognize the tension of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that set before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet Isaiah prophesies that this one that is coming, this suffering servant, would do so, would suffer under the will of God. Jesus recognizes that he is that one. He is that son of man. And it will go to him as is written of him. And in the same breath, he also knows that Judas is the one who will betray him. And he says, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Yes, it's God's will that the Son of Man be betrayed and fall into the hands of sinners, be delivered into the hands of sinners in order to accomplish this redemption. But Judas is held liable for his free will decision to be the one who betrayed Jesus. Jesus wanted to celebrate this feast with his disciples because he knew how badly they needed it. And Judas wasn't the only one who needed to celebrate this Passover. Jesus knew that all would fall away. Look with me at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus knew that they would all fall away. And he prophesies as such. He tells them. He predicts it to them. And Peter's response to this news? Well, I could see these guys falling away, but not me. There is no way. 
Peter is resolved that he will not do this. And he says, even if I have to go to my death, I will not deny you. Peter was proud when they found him. Remember when they called him? He was self-employed as a fisherman, right? So he was a businessman. He knew how to get things done. He was proud. He was bold. He's often the first one to speak what other people are thinking. And Peter was confident in his abilities. And he probably had good reason to be all of those things. But Peter was lacking. Peter did not seem to understand the strength of the enemy that he was up against. Luke tells us this in his account of this. He says, Simon, no, these are the words of, of Jesus. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Peter was not living in a vacuum. You and I do not live in a vacuum where we can resolve to be faithful unto Christ as though there won't be any opposition or any temptation to fall away. Peter discounted the strength of his enemy. And all the disciples said the same. They all resolved that none of them would fall away. And as we read on through the end of the chapter, we find that Jesus was right. They're all going to scatter. They're all going to leave Jesus alone. Jesus knew the depth of their depravity. He knew the struggle with sin. He knew the frailty of their faith. And He knew how His death would rock them. Can you identify with these disciples? All will fall away. That verb there, fall away, is a passive verb. It means that there are outside forces that are working on the individual causing them or inviting them to fall away. This desertion of Jesus is not so much a willful act of of decision as it is a failure to keep your guard up, a failure to be alert, a failure to stay intimately connected. And then you find yourself, by degree, falling away. How many of you in the last week have been involved in a conversation with somebody who doesn't appear to know the Lord and you hear the Spirit prompting you, talk to me, talk to them about me. Talk, proclaim Christ to that person. But then also in your mind you hear, yeah, but you know, you've got so much to do and there isn't really time and this person probably won't want to hear what you have to say anyway. And then you listen to that voice and by degree, your boldness begins to fall away. Or maybe you're surfing the web or cruising through the channels on your TV and an image of something that you shouldn't look at comes across. And instead of glancing away or quickly flipping the channel, you take a second look. And now your purity and your holiness begin to erode away. Or maybe you find yourself in difficult circumstances that seem so large that now all of a sudden your peace and your joy seem contingent upon your circumstances and they, by degree, begin to erode away. Jesus knew what these people would face. He knew how badly they needed the reminder of this feast. And it's the same for you and it's the same for I. Indeed, Jesus said it best when He looked at them in the Garden of Gethsemane as they fell asleep. 
He said, indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Just like Jesus knew how badly his disciples needed this meal, he knows how badly you and I need to eat this meal. And smack in the middle of these two predictions of betrayal and denial, Mark includes the story of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. So here we have another one of Mark's sandwiches that he's serving up to us today. The top bun, if you will, are verses 17 to 23, the prediction of the betrayal of Judas. The bottom bun are verses 26 through 31, which is the prediction of the denial of all the rest of the disciples. And in the middle, the meat of this passage that Mark has intentionally placed here are verses 22 through 25, where Jesus proclaims that he himself is the Passover lamb. Read with me verses 22 and following. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now what isn't very obvious to us Gentile readers in the 21st century is that when Jesus said these words as he held up the bread and as he held up the cup, he's breaking script. He's saying something that they were not expecting him to say. In the Passover meal, yes, it was, it was tradition for the host, for the, for the father of the house, to hold up the various ingredients of the meal and to describe them, to explain what they were and how they symbolized the bitter existence of Israel in bondage under Egyptian slavery. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say that this is unleavened bread because our forefathers didn't have time to raise their bread on the night of the Passover. He doesn't explain that. Instead, he says, this is my body. He breaks script in a way that causes them to pay attention. We have worship leaders, Walt Hera and Kenny Clark, who sometimes will break script on some of our popular worship songs. Change some of the verses, if you will. And when they do that, it causes us to pay attention, right? We, it's not what we're used to hearing. So then we reread those words that they have chosen to use instead, and we understand the significance of what they're bringing in. That is a bit of what Jesus is doing here. He breaks script in the traditional Passover meal in order for these disciples to understand and to receive exactly what he wants them to understand. So just as the food items in the Passover meal represented something that showed the bitter existence of Israel under the bondage of Egypt, now Jesus is using and saying that this is the blood of the covenant. This is His blood. Prior to this, it's been the blood of sheep and bulls and goats that have represented the old covenant. But now Jesus is saying this is His blood of the covenant. And I'm sure the words of Jeremiah 31 would echo in the disciples' ears. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declared the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What Jesus is saying here is, remember the four aspects of God's promises that the Passover meal is remembering, their deliverance and their liberation and their redemption and their reconciliation from the nation of Israel back toward God. What Jesus is saying here when He says, this is my body and this is my blood, is he's saying, I am delivering you from a far greater enemy than Egypt, but from that of sin. I'm liberating you from a greater oppressor than the Egyptians, from that of sin. I am redeeming you with my body and with my blood, with a mighty act of judgment. Oh, and he is about to go under a mighty act of judgment as he hangs on Calvary's cross. The fullness of the wrath of God against sin will be placed on Jesus. On him. He will absorb the fullness of God's wrath as the Lamb of God. And he will shed his blood as the Lamb of God to purchase our redemption through that mighty act of judgment. He will free us with His body and with His blood from the penalty and the power of sin. And thereby, this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied of forgiveness of sins will be accomplished without sacrificing any of God's integrity and character in His wrath against sin. It will be fully fulfilled by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all through faith in Him can be reconciled to Him. Look again at verse 23. Mark 14, 23. Jesus says, they all drank of it. This meal was offered to all. Every one of these disciples who was here were offered this meal. And they all drank of it. Even Judas. Even Peter. And we're about to celebrate this meal here this morning. We have the elements behind me. The bread and the cup. And as we do, this meal is offered to all of you. Even you, and you, and you, and even me. But this meal will only benefit those who participate in it, who partake of it, by faith. There's nothing magical in this bread or in this cup that earns our salvation. They are mere symbols. Just like the bread and the lamb and the other elements of the Passover meal were symbols reminding the people of Israel of God's great deliverance of their forefathers from Egypt, these are symbols that remind us of what Jesus did as the Passover lamb to purchase our salvation from sin. And there are only two prerequisites to participate in this meal. One is need. 
you may think that because of your sin, that you need to do something to clean yourself up before you can participate in this meal. That is wrong. It is precisely your awareness of your sin that qualifies you to participate in this meal. Now we are called to participate not flippantly. We're called to examine our hearts. And in a minute, we'll take some time to do that. Because the sin that God reveals to us, we will want to confess before Him and lay again at the foot of the cross before we come and participate. But an awareness of your need is one of the prerequisites. And the other is that of faith. Those who take this meal must take it by faith in what these symbols represent. The body of Christ, which was given for us, and the blood of Christ, which was shed for us, that makes perfect atonement for our sins. Just like Israel was saved from the angel of death when they put their faith in that sacrificed Passover lamb and they applied the blood of that lamb to their doorposts and to the lintel of their homes. When we, the people of God, take and celebrate this supper, the Lord's Supper, by faith, we are in effect taking the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, and applying it to our doorposts of our heart. And we are delivered from our sin. We are delivered from the wages of sin, which is death. Because of Jesus, our Passover lamb. He is our substitute. He took on Him the wrath and the penalty that was due us because of our sin. And when we trust Him by faith, we do not have to endure that wrath. We have been delivered. This table is open to all of you who trust Jesus by faith. And if you're here this morning and you have never done that, you can do it right now. There's nothing complicated about it. You can simply recognize your need and say, Lord Jesus, I'm in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner. And I trust you as my Passover lamb. I want you to save me. I want you to fill me with your spirit and make me one of your chosen children. It's as simple as that. And you can say that prayer in your heart. And as you could come forth and you can celebrate this meal, recognizing that Jesus is your Passover lamb. We celebrate an open table. There will be servers who come up and grab the bread and grab the cup. And we have a gluten-free option as well. Simply, you, you would come forward and you would tear off a piece of the bread representing Jesus' body. And you would dip it in the cup. And you can either partake of it right there or you can go back to your seat and you can spend some time in prayer. But before we do, as I invite the servers up, let's take some time and examine our hearts so that we can participate in this Lord's Supper, in this Passover meal, recognizing that Jesus is our Passover lamb with a pure heart. Spend some time in silence examining your heart. Listen to how Paul encouraged the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Servers, please come forward now and let's spend some time in, in silent reflection, examining and preparing your hearts to celebrate this meal. 
Let me, let me pray. Father, we praise You for Your wise plan. For it was Your will that Your servant, our Lord Jesus, would be crushed. That He would lay down His life and make perfect payment with His body and His blood for our sin. Lord, we recognize that apart from You, we are lost in our sin. We are dead and there's no hope for life. But because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His willingness to sacrifice His life to make payment for us, we can also walk in the newness of life. So send forth Your Spirit. Show us these sins that we need to confess and help us to rise up on the heels of that and celebrate with joy in our hearts what You have purchased for us, this great salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb. In whose name we pray, amen.